Praise the Lord. Good morning. We're going to get right into the Word this morning. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm just going to read the same two verses that I've um, that have been the foundation of my sermon. Really, this is one big sermon, and I'm still on point number one, which is eleven points. And so I haven't. I won't get to point number two or point number three today. But um, can I tell you something? You know when the Holy Spirit is telling you to speak on something, and uh, the Holy Spirit clearly is telling me all week, speak on these things. And you say, well, man, these aren't specifically biblical lessons or biblical preaching or or I'm not teaching on a certain, you know, part of the Bible and giving Bible history. But one of the things the Lord is telling me is that it's more important sometimes to, we can know the Bible sometimes, but not apply it to the world around us. And so sometimes God really focuses in and says, this is what the Word says, but you always have to apply it to the world around you. And so this is all application to the world around us. And the world around us needs us to have this information, and we need to act upon it, or there is going to be... um, Very serious consequences if we don't act upon the Word of God. How many know that's true? And so this message is all about acting on the Word of God and understanding what's going on around you. And so I will, well, let me read these scriptures first. Proverbs 14, 34. It says, Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Psalm 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, Lord, and we're so thankful to have a chance, Lord God, to um, proclaim your word, Lord, and to uh, put our trust in it, Lord, and to put it into action in the world around us, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you uh, speak to us clearly, Lord. Father, that you fill us with the courage to um, act. And uh, Lord, that you would direct our steps in everything that we do, Lord, as your church, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. So the foundation of this message is that God wants righteousness to exalt every nation. And God doesn't want sin to disgrace a nation. God wants to bless nations, and the way He blesses nation is their God is the Lord of the Bible. And so as we go into this, the first thing that I covered, a little bit of a, of a recap, I feel like I have to do. The first thing is, God ordained nations, just as a review. You know, God actually created nations because he wanted to bless people. And in, in an um, act of God, at the moment of the Tower of Babel, God decided to split all the nations of the world. And as I said in the past, I believe it's God's mercy 
because God didn't want evil to spread over the entire earth of people. In fact, that's what was happening under this one world system. There was a evil intent in the heart of the enemy to corrupt all the people of the earth with evil. And so the creating of nations made that nearly impossible for the enemy to do. For the enemy to gather all the nations of the world together as one became nearly impossible because God created nations. And God intended for nations to be like a city on a hill. He wanted them to show righteousness so other nations would see their blessing and want to be like them. And by contrast, curse nations that their God is not the Lord and their ways are unrighteous. And so God is in the business, how many know this? God is in the business of blessing nations and cursing nations. And so this first section is, here's the things that we did that brought God's blessing. And so the first thing that I talked about was, the Bible was the authority on, upon which they built their ideas. And so I went through a great deal of um, information, uh, 15,000 articles from 240 some odd people who are the founders of our nation, including all 55 founding fathers, and their majority source of quotation was the Bible. And that's very unusual. That's very rare. In fact, it, it led to people seeing us as a Christian nation, and we believed ourselves to be a Christian nation. Uh, the second thing was they recognized human rights aren't given or taken away by a, a government. Government was instituted in Genesis to protect human rights because we're made in the image of God. Uh, number three, they recognized human nature is always sinful, and every individual is capable of being sinful, so they separated the powers because they believed biblically they didn't want us to stand in the place of God. Only God can rule and reign through separated powers because one person would be evil because of sinful nature. How many are following all these points? Number five, or number four, I'm sorry, we partnered with Christianity. Our founding fathers, this is what I covered last week, believed that in order to have good government, you first had to have a moral people. And so without partnering with Christianity, you couldn't have a moral people and you couldn't have a moral foundation. Thus, it would be impossible for any governing document to help a people unless they partnered with Christianity and the Word of God. So it was their foundation from the very beginning. Christian education naturally followed that all of their schools were based on teaching men and women to read the Bible and understand the Bible. Uh, the first real founding document of public education was what I called last week the old deluder law. And so in the original colonies, even before 1776, the basis of their education, the first actual law that they made for public education was, we don't want people to be fooled by Satan, so our kids need to know the Word of God as early as possible, and they need to read the Word of God. So they taught that as a foundation of Christian education. The last point I made last week was they had a foundation of sexual morality. And I cited a study by a man who was a social anthropologist from Oxford. His entire life work was studying 5,000 years of human history. And the basic point of the 5,000 years studying every culture 
that did well, every culture that succeeded was, the foundation was the ones who were uh, sexually moral and lined up with the Bible basically were very blessed. And if they weren't, they were in a, in a state of degradation and every part of their sciences struggled with a culture like that. And so go back and look at those messages if you want to see the full explanation of each one. My next point, these are the things that made America great. Now, how many know if we want to be great, these are the points we need to look for in a political platform. These are the things that we need to stress that our nation needs to be in order to be great. We can't just take the things of the past that made us great and not do them any longer and expect to be a great nation. We've got to go back to what we did well, and we need to really pinpoint some of the things that, that we did well. And one thing that I believe that blessed the United States as a nation was, the United States blessed first the Jews and the nation of Israel. Now, how many know the nation of Israel didn't come around till the 1940s, right? And so the United States was a nation for a very long time, And what you had was, from the time of AD 70 until the time they became a nation, they were spread out all over the world. And all over the world, you can track the histories of the Jews all over the world. At one time or another, with every nation, they turned on the Jews. And the Jews were persecuted in every nation in the world. And so at some point or another, every nation turned on them. And you can see in history the results of this scripture in Genesis 12, 3, it says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so this is a promise to the father of the Jewish people, the father of the Israelites. Abraham was given this promise, and it was repeated all the way through his children. And so there was a clear promise that God himself... He doesn't do this with other nations. And sometimes the Jews are quoted as saying, God, uh, could we just for a little while not be your chosen people? Because everywhere they went, they've been really just practically destroyed everywhere they've been. They've been singled out. They've been mistreated very harshly. And no other group of people has been treated more harshly over history than the Jewish people. And so sometimes they wish they weren't God's people, but they are. And so one of the things, in fact, listen to this. Since 1985, the United States has provided nearly $3 billion in grants annually to Israel, with Israel being the largest annual recipient of American aid from 1976 to 2004. So we've not given more money to any other nation than Israel. $3 billion annually. And it says, they're a cumulative recipient between the period of 76 to 2004 of 142.3 billion non-inflation adjusted since World War II. 74% of these funds must be spent purchasing U.S. goods and services. More recently, in the fiscal year 2019, the U.S. provided $3.8 billion in foreign military aid to Israel. Israel also benefits from $8 billion of loan guarantees. Almost all U.S. aid to Israel is now in the form of military assistance, while in the past it also received significant economic assistance. 
Strong congressional support for Israel has resulted in Israel receiving benefits not given to other countries. Now, how many understand that we are Israel's best friend? In fact, when you go to Israel, they know this. And no friend of the nations has been better and stronger and an ally for Israel. Sometimes we're the only ally. Okay? And if the Bible is very clear that he will bless those who bless Israel, then how can we disconnect ourselves from a blessing any quicker than separating ourselves from Israel as a supporter? And you say, well, that's very logical, but there's a lot of reformer, uh, reformed believers in this country that won't give a second to support Israel. I'm a big believer in supporting Israel. And... Um, In addition to the financial and military aid, the United States also provides political support to Israel. How many know that Israel is not very popular in the United Nations? Having used its United Nations Security Council veto power, the United States has veto power that only a few nations have. They've used their veto power 42 times with respect to resolutions relating to Israel. Out of a total of 83 times, in which the U.S. has used it, between 1991 and 2011, 15 of those were used to protect Israel out of the 24 total that they used. So 14 out of 24 were used to protect Israel because constantly resolutions are coming onto the floor to nail Israel, to just go after Israel, to harm Israel. And U.S. politically has sometimes been their only supporter. That veto is sometimes the only thing that stands between Israel and the nations that are trying to harm Israel. But even farther back in our nation, here's a letter from George Washington. And at the time, there was no Israel, but George Washington was the first president of the United States, and there's a museum in a Jewish synagogue, and the letter that is in that museum is from George Washington from his visit there. He said this in the letter, I rejoice in the opportunity of assuring you that I shall always retain a grateful remembrance of your cordial welcome. I experienced my visit to Newport. The government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, made the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. While every one shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and none shall make them afraid here. So George Washington, as the head of the nation, made a point to let this Jewish synagogue know, and they weren't a they were a very small population of Jews, and he wanted to make sure they knew that they were protected in this nation. You say, Well, that's not that big of a deal, but when you've been all over the world and been persecuted and you're looking for a home, and those roots with George Washington, those seeds would just begin to grow in this nation. And it became very evident around the world that the Jews needed their own homeland because everywhere they went, they were destroyed. And so there came a time during the administration of Harry Truman and his cabinet had had lots of arguments and debates and discussions and almost everybody told Harry Truman when they have an opportunity to announce their statehood, do not support them. And the British mandate was over the land of Israel. The Palestinian 
Israeli land that we see today was under a British mandate. Well, the British were going to remove that mandate, and the United States already knew that Israel was going to proclaim their independence as a nation and become a nation. So as word began to spread, they began to have meetings and some of his closest advisors, in fact, they weren't just meetings and they weren't cool-headed meetings. There were meetings where there were arguments and his most trusted advisor, who he considered the greatest American in the United States' greatest advisor, said, don't do it. And Harry Truman actually wrote a time on the document where he stated that we recognize them as the state of Israel. And the time was 6-11. And nobody could figure out why he put 6-11 on there. And then finally the mystery was solved. He didn't wait till they announced it the next day that they were proclaiming their statehood. The British mandate actually ran out at midnight. So when you look at the time it was in Israel and the time it was where Harry Truman was at, Harry Truman announced that we support your statehood 11 minutes after midnight, recognizing that as soon as you became a state, we recognize your statehood. He was the first and the only at the time who recognized their statehood. And a lot of people will point to that and say that that was one of the riskiest thing that Harry Truman did because there was so much so many people that were opposed to him doing that. Now I fast forward, I just watched a speech the other day. And I was watching President Trump, and I'll tell you this. You can say a lot of things about President Trump, but you can't say that that man hasn't stood for Israel. When you go to Israel, in fact, he said in his speech the other day, I think my approval rating would be 98% if I ran for office in Israel. And he's very loved in Israel. And the reason he is loved is because for 52 years, everybody said that they would make Jerusalem the capital of Israel and move their embassy there, but nobody ever did it. And President Trump was speaking to evangelicals the other day. And he said, you know, and he talked about the process of naming Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Well, see, no nation would recognize that. They said their capital is Jerusalem. They said, no, it's Tel Aviv. And so everybody's embassy would go to Tel Aviv and nobody would recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Most of them wouldn't even recognize them as a nation. And President Trump had said that his political promise was, I will put the embassy in Jerusalem. And That was not popular. In fact, everybody from all around the world, in his words, he said kings, queens, dictators, everybody around the world was calling my office and saying, don't do it. He said, I told my secretary, tell him I'll call him back, and I never did. And even his own advisors, he didn't tell them he was going to do it. And President Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing that as the capital of Israel. And another giant thing he did at the same time was, nobody would recognize the land that Israel had won in the 67 war on the Golan Heights. Nobody would recognize that that was Israel's. And in the same period of time, he also said, we recognize Golan Heights as belonging to Israel. And this is major. President Trump went on to say, he said, I went to Israel and I asked them which one was bigger, the Golan Heights 
or putting your embassy in Jerusalem. Because they're both huge things that have not happened for, you know, nobody has been that supportive of Israel maybe in our history, even more so than Truman, really. And they said, no, the biggest thing that you did was you canceled the Iran nuclear deal. And a lot of you that don't know this, in Israel, when you go to the Golan Heights to the north, when you're on the Golan Heights, you're looking down into Israel. Okay, Golan Heights is the higher ground, and then when you go to Syria and Lebanon, you're even higher. So you're actually looking down, and so it's a piece of land that strategically is where Israel has always been destroyed by armies coming from the north downhill. Okay, it's a strategic location. Mount Hermon is there, and they sit on top of Mount Hermon and look down and spy on the Israelites, and it's just a very strategic location. Okay, and by the way, Mount Harmon is how they pronounce it in Israel. You say, I thought it was Herman. No. In Israel, they announce it, they pronounce it that way. So I've been trying to do it like they do it. I don't know. It doesn't feel right. But, but anyway, all of the terrorists that are on that border there were being funded by that Iran nuclear deal. They were funding Hezbollah. They all received large sums of money to use to kill Israelites. And so a lot of the Iran nuclear deal was not a friendly thing to Israel, and it did nothing to protect Israel. So we are a nation, how many know, we are a nation that loves Israel, we're an ally of Israel, we are on the right side of history when we support Israel. Woe to this nation if we ever back away from Israel. And so these are things that have caused us to be blessed. How many want to read the Bible and know you're on the right side? <laughs> okay. The next thing, and this is going to take most of my time today. This one is really important. In fact, if you looked at my list, we support Israel. This one, which is we are a free market society as opposed to socialist, communist the Bill of Rights, and then we are a praying nation. You would think this one I'm covering now is probably the least important. We're a free market society as opposed to a socialist, communist society. But it turns out this is the one the Holy Spirit wanted me to really talk on today. And I want you to really listen to some of the things we're talking about here. Genesis 3.19 says... By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's repeated in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So this is talking about, this isn't talking about disabled people, it's not talking about elderly, it's not talking about children. It's talking about just the general idea that an able-bodied person in order to eat should work. And if you don't work, you don't what? Eat. And you say, well, man, that's a simple principle. Can we really build anything that on in Genesis? Because Genesis is the first of everything. It talks about the first marriages. What do they look like? The first nations, you know, the first sacrifice to God is in Genesis. Every foundation and every first is there. It turns out this is a big one. This is a giant one. So what is the big deal with socialism? 
And if you take polls right now, and you poll the people, a lot of the young people that are in college, uh, the millennials, they are supportive of socialism. And they believe socialism is a good thing, a positive thing, and it's not that big of a deal if we're not a free market. Socialism sounds pretty good. And so the Lord's really led me to talk on the subject of socialism because how many know in this election most of the presidential candidates on the Democratic ticket were Democratic socialists? And socialism is out in the open now. You know, out in the open you hear ideas of socialism, you hear processes of socialism, and it used to be something you hid, and if you found it out, you were ruined as a politician. Now it's acceptable. And you say, well, Chad, do you really want to preach about economics and church? Well, church, you better listen to this. Listen very carefully, especially if you're in high school or going to college or you're young. Listen to this because the previous generation knows a little bit about it. Okay, they've watched socialism, communism ravage the world. And so if we're not careful and we don't stand up to this scourge, really, of socialism, then we're going to be really in sorry shape, church, and we need to know about this stuff. Socialism sounds great. The slogan of the French revolutionaries who were socialists was liberty, equality, fraternity. Who couldn't stand for that? And that sounds awesome. Liberty, equality, and fraternity. That sounds great. Free health care. How many are for that? I don't know you guys are afraid to raise your hand now. Real life. Man, free health care. We don't have to pay for it. This is awesome. This is great, man. I love this system. Free college. How many wouldn't want free college? They're expensive. Free college. Come on. Who's with me? Free college, free health care, universal income. How many have heard this from the candidates? A universal income for everybody. If that's possible, we're in, right? That sounds great. A universal income for everybody. Enjoy life more. Everybody gets a universal income. If you haven't heard these yet, you're going to hear them very soon because it's a rising group of socialists that are in this country. And most of the Democrats, including Barack Obama, including Hillary Clinton, including Joe Biden, including AOC and her little band of uh, politicians, the squad, Bernie Sanders. You look, I can name almost every candidate in the last Democratic debates. Elizabeth Warren, I would include. But I just want to tell you that this is Democratic Socialism. And I want you to listen very carefully. You say, well, you're not supposed to do this as a church, one thing I'm not supposed to do is tell you who to vote for. But I can very well tell the history of this country and tell the beliefs of these politicians. And I want you to listen very carefully to this. Here's a basic understanding of the two systems, okay? And this is not where it gets scary, okay? But here's a basic understanding. This is my understanding of the two systems in my small brain, all right? I have a garden. I eat what I want, and I sell what's left over. Okay? I have a garden. I like tomatoes, right? So I eat what tomatoes I'm going to use. I can what I'm going to use, and whatever's left over, I take to a market, and I sell to other people. And if I see I can make more money, I'll plant more tomatoes and sell more. Right? That's a free market. 
Free market is natural. It's what happens in every society. It's naturally built. Socialism is this. I have a garden, and all is giving to the central planner, and it's distributed evenly. Now, how exciting does that sound? You plant a garden, you have 30 tomatoes, okay? 15 of them went to me, 15 went to market. Now all 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 go to a central planner to make sure everybody has tomatoes. How many think that sounds good? Okay, like I said, it's that's very basic and that doesn't tell you the evils yet. But the central planner idea is something you need to remember. Let me ask you a question. If it's about redistributing wealth is what you're going to continually hear from a socialist. It's about redistributing wealth. How many have heard this? The politicians are all saying it. It's about redistributing wealth from the wealthy to the poor. Okay, if it's only about redistributing wealth from the rich to the poorest and equality for them, then why are the wealthiest supporting socialism? Nine out of the top ten wealthiest donors to political campaigns in the U.S. were given to democratic socialist platforms. Nine of the ten wealthiest donors gave to socialist platforms. Now, if it's all about taking property and money from the wealthiest and giving it to the poor, then why are they all in on this? Think about it. Why are the wealthiest trying to destroy free market and have socialism if it's about taking from them and giving it to the poor? Socialism is based on the past ideals of utopian societies. It's very important to understand. These ideas just didn't come around in the last hundred years. They didn't come around the last ten years. They're based on ideas in history, and that's what I'm going to go over today. Ideals of utopian societies. Now here's what's happening. Here's why the wealthiest want this change towards socialism, and you need to understand this. The wealthiest believe that if there is a central planning group, basically the United Nations, they are a central planning group, they believe that they're smart enough as central planners to have a utopian society. They believe they can get rid of all wars, all poverty, all sickness, all disease, everything. They basically believe that they are God. And they believe these central planners, if they would take away the terrible, sinful nature of the people toward greed, toward fighting, toward all these different things, they believe the central planners, the smartest, most intellectual people, the small group of elitists like Bill Gates, all right, George Soros, remember the term central planners. Socialism is about the central planners. They want to plan everything in society. They want to take care of our overpopulation problem. They want to take care of our environmental problems. They want to take care of our problems with religion, our problems with wars, our problems with crime. And they want to be a central planning group. And that's what this socialism is all about. And the wealthiest are the planners. They're the ones that are centrally planning. And you say, well, man, is this a conspiracy theory or is this something that has actually happened or something that's documented? 
Church, it's very, 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 very well documented. We just need to read a little more. In fact, let me give you the earliest model for socialism. How many have ever heard of a nation-state in Greece called Sparta? Sparta is cited by people like Karl Marx, Lenin, also many of the modern utopian movements of socialism. They are the model that a lot of people are looking at. Sparta was this nation-state around 800 A.D., and they decided, in fact, he went around the world studying governments, and then finally he went to a soothsayer in Greece and said, is what I'm proposing to do the right thing? And she said, you're like a god, go on and do it. And so he went and he built this society that really is the foundation. In fact, Plato and Sparta, Plato came much later, but Plato's Republic and then Plato's laws, those writings, are about the same thing. It's about people dedicated to the state and building a society that is utopian. Now listen to some of the things that they did in Sparta. The Grecian city-state of Sparta and Plato's descriptions reflect society, and it's the inspiration for most utopian tyrants throughout history. Individuality was discouraged, and all were expected to live their lives in obedience to the dictates of the totalitarian leadership. Boys were raised from birth to be soldiers for the state. Sparta moved to a utopian tyranny under the rule of Lycurgus, who imposed a series of laws on Spartans around 800 B.C. He turned Sparta into a disciplined war machine, a country where freedom was non-existence and where cultural creativity died. Regrettably, his influence over his nation-state lasted for 500 years. Sparta eventually decayed from within and outside invasions decimated. Now listen to this. Plutarch describes Sparta... He says, Lycurgus traveled to other parts of the known world to study various forms of government and cultures before returning to Sparta to implement his plans. He searched for a society with virtue and warrior ethos. Lycurgus traveled to the Greek oracle of Delphi, a priestess of God Apollo, to obtain instructions from the gods on how to rule. He claimed that they said he himself was a god and confirmed his ruthless plans for governing. Long before Karl Marx, Lycurgus was the ideal collectivist and central planner. He believed that Sparta's citizens were the property of the state and that they had no higher purpose than to obey the dictates and rulers throughout their lives. The concepts of individual liberty and freedom of conscience and action were non-existent in Sparta. The state, rather than the family, was the center of each person's life. Listen very carefully to this, church. This is the foundation. If you go to a school of higher learning in Greek, they're going to begin to teach you about Sparta. And Sparta is the foundation of people like Adolf Hitler, Karl Marx, Joseph Stalin, Lenin. They all studied Sparta, and they all studied Plato, Plato's Republic. But listen to this. I'm going to explain what it's like. They were called collectivists. They hated wealth and private property. So they decided the wealthy landowners should be stripped of all their property so it could be given to the poor. They engaged in what current collectives describe as redistributing wealth. In the 20th century, communists call this agrarian reform. According to Plutarch, Lycurgus accomplished this without murdering anybody. Lycurgus abolished all 
mass of pride, envy, crime, and luxury would flowed from those old and terrible acts of riches and poverty by inducing all landowners to offer their estates for redistribution, prevailing upon them to live on equal terms one with another, with equal income, striving only to surpass each other in courage and virtue, there being henceforth no social inequalities among them except praise or blame can create. How many see what's happening here? Redistribution of wealth, and they're not even hiding it today. They're saying we want to redistribute people's wealth because wealth is what's causing our problems. The Bible says different. The Bible says our problems are because of sin, not redistribution of wealth. And so this society took everybody's property, and you say, well, has that happened in modern times? Look at Russia. Look at China. Look at Venezuela. Look at these nations that have accepted social reforms, and this is the foundation. He was opposed. In fact, uh, there's a story of Barack Obama telling a little uh, girl. He said, um, socialism is this. If you have a pizza that you have made and somebody is hungry, wouldn't you give them a slice? Well, man, that sounds good. In fact, can I tell you, Barack Obama is the king of the double-tongue speak. Because socialism isn't having a warm pizza and giving somebody a slice. Socialism is, I bought the ingredients, I made the pizza, I'm starving to death, and I only get one piece because seven other people get pieces who didn't work at all. How many understand the difference? This is not being kind and charitable. This is the government taking all eight slices and giving you one even though you're starving. Does everybody understand that? Other things that happen in Sparta. Lycurgus also hated the concept of money because it supposedly resulted in greed and avarice. His solution was to abolish the use of gold and silver money to make iron money the only legal tender that they had in the city-state. The iron money was so large it had to be carried on a yoke of oxen. The destruction of the gold and silver standard also made it possible for Sparta to effectively trade with other countries. No other country recognized Sparta's iron money, and few people even wanted it. The abolition of gold and silver effectively isolated Sparta from the supposed corrupting influence of strangers and other nations. It's starting to look like North Korea and China, right? After this, he ordered a general expulsion of workless workers who were in useless trades. So most of them left the country because you couldn't trade their goods anyway with the money, with the lack of money. So there were no goldsmiths, workers, and silver. Because there was no money to pay them with, luxury was cut off from all encouragement. Gradually it became extinct, and the rich were on the same level as the other people, and they could find no means of display but they were forced to keep their money idle at home. Because of this, do you see what happened here? There are no more luxuries. Everybody is poor and on the same state, and nobody has anything nice because they all were put on the same state. Money was abolished. Lycurgus was also a great advocate of infanticide, which became an institution in Sparta. When a child was born, it was considered state property. And if a boy was destined to spend most of his life training and engaging in warfare against Sparta's enemies, thus he had to be strong and indifferent to pain and privation. Babies that appeared to have defects or weakness at birth were eliminated. 
because they could not serve the Spartan state, and thus they had no value. Boy, does that sound like Adolf Hitler a little bit? He forbade free travel, and this is in almost every socialist society. Outsiders were discouraged from coming to Sparta. He feared that if free travel in and out of the country were permitted, the Spartans might become infected with the thoughts and practices of other cultures. Such restrictions are typically imposed by totalitarian governments based on central planning today. So how many know that um, North Korea doesn't exactly have a lot of uh, people traveling in and out of North Korea? China doesn't exactly have a lot of people traveling in and out. Um, so they free travel. In fact, you know that right now China has a system of points. And if you behave properly, you'll get enough points to travel from one side of the country to the other. In fact, in Russia, they have free health care. Yay! But when I was talking to our missionaries in Russia, you know what they told me? You can only go to the clinic that's in your area, and you are not allowed to travel to another area and get treated. And so they're bound on travel. You can't hardly move around freely. They want to know where everybody's at at all times. Do you guys see where this is headed in the power part of it? Okay. The Spartans were strictly divided into classes. They had the uh, the lowest class, the helots, and they could treat the helots any way they wanted. The helots were basically there to serve the elite. How many know that? They also had a secret police that constantly were there to keep the helots in line. They were called the cryptia. And they were a secret police that were there to be very brutal to the helots so nobody would ever rise up and overtake the elite class. In fact, the model of this group of people is where the Soviets got the idea for the KGB. It's where uh, Mao got the idea for his secret force. All these secret forces were modeled after Sparta. How many know that? To keep everybody in line. The Spartan Book of Laws preached the principle that the people are not the means, they are the means to the ends. So all freedom was taken away. Morality was sacrificed to obtain something which can only be valuable as a means to this morality. Spartan utopian tyranny, of course, inspired Adolf Hitler and other totalitarian regimes. In the book Sparta and Modern Thought, describes how Spartan culture was used by such tyrants to model for their dictatorships. In fact, a quote, in 1940, Hitler had a textbook printed for the German youth titled Sparta, The Life Struggle of the Aryan Master Race. He inspired, uh, Sparta inspired German youth in order to create Hitler's thousand-year reign on earth. Nazi youth were educated in the same way the Spartan youth were. How many see how socialism led to the National Socialist Party in Germany, which is what Hitler was trying to institute in Germany. Let me give you another one. Another book that they cite quite often is a book by Sir Thomas More, Utopia. It was first published in 1516. In fact, it was cited by Vladimir Lenin as his basis for his society. Thomas More describes a nation in the second part of Utopia. He describes a nation that he visited called Utopia. And in Utopia, they had a unique way of governing, and a lot of socialist societies are modeled after this book called Utopia. Here's his descriptions of Utopia. The citizens of Utopia are controlled from the cradle to the grave by magistrates. 
They're chosen from among the people who in turn rule by a prince who serves for life. Utopians have little freedom in choosing their own careers. They are forced by the government to work part of the time as farmers and other times as laborers in the cities. In Pol Pot's version of Cambodia and Mao's China, city dwellers were sent in rural areas to farm as well. So in China, Cambodia, a lot of these communist socialist nations, how many know they don't want wasted energy into industries that don't profit the city? So they actually pick your career in a lot of places. They tell you what you're in socialism, they don't want to have wasted resources, so they will actually control all means of labor, all means of production. In fact, I've heard AOC actually say, we believe in the state controlling all means of production. How many have heard her say that? I've actually heard her say that. And socialism actually controls all means of production. In fact, Britain for a while was socialist. How many know that before Margaret Thatcher? And so they controlled the railroads, the state controlled the uh, the energy industry, they controlled large portions of Britain, and finally they had to go more to a capitalistic uh, economic system in order to grow. And Margaret Thatcher was the one that kind of brought them out of socialism. The concepts of individual freedom or human rights were unknown in utopia. Every person is considered to be the tool of the benevolent central government which controls a person's life from the moment he rises in the morning till he goes to bed at night. In essence, the citizens of Utopia are happily enslaved, working for their entire lives in service. The government controls every aspect of their existence. How many know socialism's goal is to have a central government that controls every part of our lives? Our founding fathers were very opposed to that. They wanted almost no government, and they wanted the people the people would control the government. The people would tell the government what to do, not the government tell the people what to do. And so central planners, central government, is the focus of a socialist system. And what these democratic socialists want is more government control in every part of your life. And so when you see, in fact, one part of this utopia, it was an island. Listen to this. Utopian medical care. In Moore's Utopia, the government offers free medical care to every citizen at four hospitals built in various locations throughout the island. But there's a dark side to the medical care. When a person becomes too ill, is urged by the government leaders to commit suicide, either by starvation or by lethal dose of drugs. In Utopia, it's a citizen's duty to not die too old or be too sick. Do you guys understand what government control of health care means? You say, well, man, I'm for the socialist platform because they're going to give everybody free health insurance. Do you realize that they're controlling a major part of your life when the government gets a hold of health care? They're going to decide who dies. They're going to decide who gets operated on. They're going to decide everything about your life when they get control of health care. That's why they all want control of health care. You say, well, man, that's okay, but I want free tuition. Do you realize when the government gets a hold of education and they control it completely, do you understand that these are going to be institutions ran by the federal government to brainwash people? You're better to have free institutions that are free to teach whatever they please than to have federally controlled education centers. Travel restricted on Utopia. No one is free to travel without permission in Moore's Utopia. 
Travel inside and outside of Utopia is permitted only if the person first obtains a passport from the rulers. The passport limits how long a citizen may be gone from home and from his uh, state-imposed duties. Once a citizen's travel has been pre-approved, the rulers supply the traveler with a wagon and a slave. The travelers carry no provisions with them. People are to give them free food and lodging along the way. The Utopians practiced religious tolerance. They warmly embraced Christianity. The only problem with Christians, however, emerged when one of the newly baptized believers began condemning another person and said he was going to go to hell for not being a Christian. He was banished from the community for his efforts. According to the novel, this is one of the most ancient laws among them, that a man shall be blamed for reasoning and the maintenance of his own religion. He said that one zealous Christian being newly baptized... Um, let's see. Basically, it says, you're okay as long as you don't bother another person or evangelize another person. So the minute you evangelize another person, he was arrested and banished from the island. Do you understand what's going to happen to religion and socialism? You say, well, man, has this happened modern day or is this just an old book from 1500? Have you seen China lately? Have you seen Russia during the Soviet socialist years? What happened in in Russia, and they're just now coming out of that where you can actually share the gospel in Russia now. And you can actually share the gospel because they were anti-God. Have you ever been, uh, have you ever tried to preach the gospel in North Korea? I'm just saying all these ideas follow socialism every time. In fact, I told you I'll make it simple. You don't have to study the classics. Just understand socialism equals anti-God, no God. And if you know that, that's all you need to know. You don't want it. Here's some other things with utopia. I'm just showing you how these things mirror what they're trying to change in our nation. Okay? Population control in Moore's utopia. Children are removed from homes and sent to live with other families if they're perceived imbalance in the population of various cities. System of government is totalitarian. Basic concepts like freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of choice, freedom of movement. No one owns property in Utopia. Everyone must share all of their produce with their fellow citizens in the city. Citizens must eat together in huge mess halls, just like the Spartans did, separated from their wives in Utopia. You know, the men weren't allowed to even live with their wives in Utopia and Sparta. They did not want the center of the society to be the family. They wanted the state to be the center of society. So the men had to live somewhere else, and they could visit their wives at certain times. Now, let me ask you a question. Black Lives Matter movement. You know that their goal as socialists is to wipe out the nuclear family, to destroy the nuclear family as we know it. In church, I can tell you everywhere where socialism is, they do not want the family to be the focus. They don't want the family to be the focus of teaching, learning. They don't want a nuclear family. They don't want a mother and the father like the Bible says to have and the father the head of the household. They want to change all of that. And they want the state to be the center. And like I said, these are, the, these are not just writings that are fun to look at. These are the foundation of their education. These are liberals study these uh, writings of Plato. They they study these writings of Sparta. They study uh, Thomas Sir Thomas More's book Utopia, and you know they say that. Um, in fact, I could go on and on here. 
They say that um, art imitates culture. And so if you begin to look as these ideas begin to progress, and like I said, when we're looking at the Bible, we've got to put that into action in modern day life, application. Well, these people are reading it and they're putting it into action. Adolf Hitler put it into action. Vladimir Lenin put it into action. Joseph Stalin put it into action. Mao in China put it into action. How many know this? They put these ideals actually into a real-life action. It resulted in over 100 million people dying You know, in recent history. How many know that? 100 million. But art imitates culture. And so there have been a lot of novels and movies that have been written that are what's called dystopian societies. Dystopian means it was meant to be utopian, but something went terribly wrong. Dystopian is what has happened in every socialist society. Every time it's been tried, it became dystopic, not utopic. I mean, everything went wrong and all the rights were taken away and it was destructive to the people and it wasn't a utopia, it was a living nightmare. So as you look at culture and novels, there are several novels that have been written. Huxley's Brave New World, George Orwell's 1984 and Animal Farm. In the early 1900s, I think it was, I don't know what year that is, 1923, there was a book called, a novel called We. And all of these are dystopian scenarios that can occur when a, when we attempt to have a utopian society. So remember, these societies aren't based on the Bible. They're based on men trying to say, I am a Messiah and we're going to save the world. And if you look at the humanistic manifesto, what do they say? We are like gods and we can save the world. There's only one person that can save the world and that's Jesus Christ. And this word is the only thing that directly addresses men's problem. And men's problem is not redistribution of wealth. Men's problem is not government. Men's problem and solution is not government. Man's solution is a uh, ability to deal with something we call sin. Sin is the problem of the world. And the only book that addresses it properly is not communism, it's not socialism, it's the Word of God. From the very first page to the very last page, he deals with sin in man. And uh, that's our solution. But in these dystopian societies, in fact, you see, um, in fact, I'm not going to go through those, but each of those novels, in fact, there was a recent movie uh, that was called The Hunger Games. And The Hunger Games is actually what I'm talking about. It was about a dystopian society. I believe it was separated into 13 districts. The people lost all human rights. They had no money. And they took two representatives from each district to punish them. And those uh, 23 teenagers were playing a sick game where they were videotaped and the elites watched them kill each other. How many know that? Did I tell that right? I've not even watched it. Okay. I read about it. I didn't watch it. But... Orwell, in his book, talks about the video surveillance of Big Brother. Control of everybody through video surveillance and control of everything we do in our lives from the beginning to the end. And church, can I tell you, socialism, the underlying evil, if I haven't stated it well enough, we need to stay away from socialism. Because socialism has central planners 
and the United Nations that want to see our free market gone. They don't want us to have freedom in our economy. They don't want us to have freedom to purchase land. They don't want us to have private property. It's not about helping the poor. It's about controlling the masses. And socialism is the... In fact, I'll tell you this. Socialism, I'm 99% sure, 99.9% sure, when the rapture occurs, we're going to fight it to the very end. But when the rapture occurs, it will be a socialistic society that emerges when we're gone. You say, well, man, this sounds horrible. Don't be here after the rapture because it will be a socialistic society. The United Nations has already broken up the world into regions. They're already ready to implement it. The only thing standing in the way really is us. That's it. And so we don't allow it. As long as we're alive, we don't allow this demonic system. I haven't even went into the histories and the backgrounds of each person. Every single situation, they hate God, they hate the church, their writings reflect. In fact, they directly say their purpose is to destroy the church and destroy Christianity. And I could go into a whole sermon just on their writings about their hatred of God. So I'm going to stop there. Just remember, socialism is bad. If you have any more questions about it, uh, we'll sit and talk about it. And so that's why I'm telling you, it's come a time where we can't be politically correct anymore. I'm going to call them out if it's a socialistic platform that they stand for. And I'm going to close with these two. uh, But the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, as a nation, how many know that we put a Bill of Rights to recognize that human beings have rights and we're not giving them or protecting them? And one of the reasons God has blessed us is because of that Bill of Rights and trying to honor everything in that Bill of Rights. And you say, well, man, Chad, it's not perfect here. It's not perfect. We're not protecting everybody's right to assemble, right to worship. How many know that's one of the miracles of the United States of America was in Europe they couldn't get along. Protestants were at war with the Catholics. Catholics were at war with the Protestants. The Muslims were destroying, you know, I mean they were working their way through Europe and the Middle East. And, and, and I mean it was a destructive world. And then all of a sudden, this Bill of Rights protected our ability to worship any way we want to worship. You say, well, man, that do not even exist in America. Well, you're here right now. And I'll guarantee you, our church would be a church that wouldn't be allowed to worship in most nations of the world in 1776. But you know, Catholics could worship, Protestants could worship, Jews were protected. You could be a Muslim, you could be just about anything in this nation that's protected. You know, rights as far as... Um, the ability to have a speedy trial, have a trial with your peers, the rights to a fair trial where you say, well, it's not perfect. Well, travel a little bit. See what it's like in other nations, and then you might appreciate the fact that we have a Bill of Rights. And so as you look at that Bill of Rights, it's one another reason because God and the prophets, one of the things He was angry with Israel about and judged them is they weren't fair. There was not justice in the land, and the poor were oppressed. And you say, well, what about capitalism? You know that God's Word has all kinds of things in the Word of God that say you cannot oppress the poor. You cannot charge high interest rates. In fact, I would call it a restricted free market. Like God has all kinds of things, even to the amount of land that they could keep purchasing. God had limitations. God wanted us to have a free market, but He wanted limitations on our capitalism. 
God wants us to have limitation on the things we do. That's why the Bill of Rights is there, so we can't infringe on the rights of another person. I think God blessed us because when you go around the world, we're not the we're not perfect. How many know that? Uh, we're still trying to create a more perfect union, but around the world, you're going to be treated fairer here than almost anywhere in the world, in very rare exceptions. Then the last thing that I think is very critical, and I can finish my first point of my sermon here. But number 11, we're a praying nation. Many times in the Constitutional Congress, in fact, you see uh, Benjamin Franklin stood up at the Continental Congress, and they were trying to iron out a constitution, or a constitutional congress, or where they were gathered together in 1789 to write the constitution. And they were at a point where they were arguing. They were at each other's throats, and they were not getting along, and they couldn't figure out what to do. And finally, Benjamin Franklin stood up, and a lot of people say, well, he was not a Christian, he was an atheist, he was an agnostic. He stood up and reminded them, do you remember when we were fighting the British for our independence, how much we prayed together? He said, we prayed constantly, and God intervened, and God delivered us, and God gave us this great nation. And he said, I propose that we begin to pray and call out to God for His favor. This was a man that was supposed to be an agnostic or supposed to be a deist and didn't believe God intervened in modern affairs. But he was saying we need to pray. And not only should we pray, but he said, I propose that every time we meet, we open in prayer and we invite clergy from this city to join us in prayer. And you say, well, that's not that big of a deal. Well, name other nations that had prayer meetings while they were developing their government. And it's just very hard to find. And uh, in fact, that we probably in a lot of ways need to live up to what they were doing. Not uh, think we were better, but say, hey, are we really having prayer meetings trying to iron out a constitution or trying to iron out a bill or trying to get along, trying not to fight? Um, we should be praying like that if they did. And so they began a prayerful nation. But then you come to the question of, there's so much wickedness in this nation. And um, you think to yourself, well, man, why doesn't God just wipe us off the earth because of all the wickedness? And why doesn't He just judge us right now? And even though I've said a lot of good things, there's so many bad things with this nation too. Why doesn't God just wipe us off? And, and you know what? Something that I really take a lot of solace in, I think is very important, is God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, they're a very wicked nation. I mean, just they're the epitome of wickedness in that culture, the things that they were doing and the ways that they behaved. And, and God says this, listen to this. He's talking to Abraham. He says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Then the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So the men walked off to go toward Sodom, but the Lord is still right in front of Abraham. And Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous in it? Far be it from me to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. For he is 
from you will not the judge of all the earth do right. The Lord said, if I can find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to you, Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of the people? If you find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again I spoke to him, what if only forty are found there? Will you for the sake of forty not do it? Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, Let me, but let me speak. What if there are only thirty that can be found? He answered, said, I will not do it if there are 30 there. Abraham said, now this I have been so bold to speak to the Lord. What if there are only 20 that are found? He said, for the sake of the 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak once more. What if there are only 10 that can be found? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. A lot of Jewish uh, rabbis will say that the number 10 is significant because it took 10 men to open a synagogue, open a uh, place of worship, open a place where it was officially, you know, a place for God. And so he asks him if there are 10. God says, I won't destroy it. Well, God ends up destroying the city, which tells you what? There weren't even 10 people in the whole, really about four or five cities. Four cities, I think, he destroyed. And this last part, God's blessing over a praying nation. In church, I know there's more than ten. I know that there are people all over this nation, and I'll tell you this, I'm in that prayer room all the time, and there are many times that God's Spirit comes upon me, and I just cry. I just say, Lord, I'm sorry for this nation. I'm sorry for our sins. I'm sorry for these things that we're doing. And how many know that God hears the prayers of the righteous and the remnant can change this nation? The remnant can still get God's blessing even in the midst of wickedness. And church, I don't want you to take it for granted, your prayer life. God hears the righteous when we cry out. God hears the righteous when we repent. How many have repented for abortion? How many have repented for wickedness? How many repented for the sexual immorality in this nation? And, and church, God is pouring His Spirit on us for a purpose. Because through the righteous, He says, if you'll humble yourself, I will heal your land. And praise the Lord, we've gotten through this first section of how God blesses. And one of the greatest ways that God blesses is the righteous are crying out to God and they're praying. And so church, how many are praying for your nation? Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. So that's the first section, how God blesses our nation. And so next week I'll go into some of the things that aren't so great about our nation. Amen. I mean, I may think that's equally important. Things that we need to acknowledge and repent of and things that we need God to heal and God to correct and to be open for God's correction. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you so much, Lord. Lord, we look to you and only you, Lord God, to heal this nation. Lord, we see the areas, Lord God, that you have blessed this nation. And and Lord, your hand has been upon this nation, Lord God. And uh, even though there is much 
much wickedness in this nation, Lord God. We know that your eyes are upon these 11 things, Lord God, and many more. And Lord, we just ask for your strength, Lord God, your mercy, Lord God, your guidance, Lord. Father, we pray for a revival in this nation, Lord God, a revival of those things that please you, Lord God. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray right now for our nation, Lord. Oh, we pray for our children and our grandchildren, Lord. Oh, Father, we're not ready to give up, Lord God. We're ready to fight for truth, Lord God. Fight for righteousness, Lord God. Lord, we're, we're ready to apply ourselves, Lord God, to, to change, Lord God, in action, Lord. Lord, we can't bury our head in the sand, Lord God. We want to be anointed like the judges of old, Lord God, to come against the unrighteous, Lord God. To stand up, Lord God. To have a voice, Lord. Oh, Father, I pray that this message, Lord, would be heard, Lord God, not just here, but even on the internet, Lord God, on YouTube, Facebook. Call to action, Lord God. Call to wisdom, Lord God. Call to discernment, Lord. Lord, and the call for standing up for the truth, Lord God, I come against political correctness, Lord. The muzzle, Lord God, on the mouth of truth, Lord. Lord, we come against political correctness, Lord. Release your people, Lord, to speak your word boldly. Grant us boldness, Lord, in this last hour, Lord. Hallelujah. Church, I just want you to begin to examine your life. Oh, hallelujah. Just examine your life. What part of history are you on? Are you standing up for righteousness? Do you know what you believe? Do you know the Word of God? Are you being fooled like the mass of people who can hear a double-tongued speaker and not discern the Word of God while listening to political speeches? I mean, no, we need discernment, not just in the church, but we need discernment in every part of life. We need discernment when we listen to a school teacher teach history. We need discernment when we hear a politician make promises. We need discernment when we hear a friend influence our choices. In church, we need discernment every day, every moment of our life. We've got to be walking in the Spirit of God. And I'm just going to challenge you, church. You say, well, man, I'll just pray for a few minutes today. Church, we've got to start getting a prayer life. We got to start digging into the word. We got to start digging into the truth. We got to start standing up for what is right, or that truth in this nation is going to be lost. Your children, and you say, Well, the Lord's coming back soon. What if He doesn't come for a hundred years? What are your children and your grandchildren going to grow up in if you don't stand for the truth today? What are they going to grow up in? And I'm just challenging you, church, I can't do it with an altar call. You say, well, won't you lay hands on me and make me different? No, why don't you change your life? Why don't you change your habits? Won't you change your behaviors? Won't you stand up for the truth and quit being so soft when it comes to the truth of the Word of God?
We need to change, church. We need to change. We need to get on our face before God and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm as responsible for this as anybody because the church is responsible. Like I said, 56 million Christians who are evangelical did not vote. That's 40%. And you're telling me you're living out the gospel. Church, we got to stand up. We got to begin to stand up. So I just want you to find a place. If you've never given your heart to the Lord and, and you want to, today is the day you may not have tomorrow. Find me. I'll pray with you confidentially. I'll lead you to the Lord. It'll be the joy of my life to do that. Praise the Lord. But otherwise, find a place and just begin to say, Lord, I want to I want to stand up. I want to be counted. I want to see change, Lord. Hallelujah. Sometimes it sounds like when you're teaching against democratic socialism that you're saying that one party is against God and are opposed to God. And just to make it clear, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but I'm saying one party's platform is against God. They want to remove God. They've openly said that. They've cheered removing God on the floor of their convention. And everything on that platform is against God. And so let me be clear, that is what I'm saying. I don't want to leave any... any. Uh, now, if they want to change their platform, I won't say these things. But as long as that is a platform and this is a Christian church, that's what I'm going to preach because change has never happened in this nation unless Christians have risen up. And church, it's time for Christians to rise up. It's time for Christians to tell the truth. It's time for Christians to quit floating down the river like a dead fish. And it's time for Christians to start swimming against the stream of culture. Because we're legalizing perversion. We're allowing people to say things about the changes in our nation that are almost unheard of. This this whole socialist, communist thing being acceptable is repulsive to me. Why? Because it brought death across the entire world. Nothing has brought death like communism and socialism. Look it up and see if I'm telling the truth. You want to know why millions of Jews were wiped out, six million of them in ovens. You want to know why? Because of socialism. You want to know why communists starved millions of people to death and had no food and intentionally did it is because of communism. And church, if I'm not going to preach against it, then I'm not even worth your time as a preacher. We preach against evil. If I'm not preaching against infanticide or abortion, I'm not worth my salt as a preacher. And church, you're not worth your salt as a Christian if you're not standing up against the culture. You might be hated, but be in good company because Jesus said, yeah, I was hated too, so so were you. 
I was persecuted, so so will you. There's a reason why we're not being persecuted. It's because we're silent. We're muzzled. We're politically correct. And so there's no persecution. But here's the problem. The longer we're silent, the more depth this nation goes into destruction. Deeper and deeper into destruction. And so I'm asking you, church, pray that God will fill you with the courage and the spirit to stand up against this evil that is destroying your nation. We're going away from the things that make America great. God's asking us to go back after him. He said, I'll watch, I'll protect you, I'll keep my hand upon you. Just be willing to tell the truth, church. Hallelujah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, Lord God. Father, I pray for a revival in this nation, Lord God. Father, I pray that you open the mouths of your people, Lord God. Father, you fill your people with fire again, Lord God. Oh, Father, fire to stir a nation, Lord God. Fire to change a nation, Lord God. Fire to speak out against every adversary, Lord God. Your early church, Lord God, spoke boldly, Lord God. Even to the death, Lord God. Even on the stake to be burned, they spoke, Lord God. They didn't keep their mouths shut. They didn't stay quiet. They preached, Lord God. Oh, Father, change us, Lord. Change us, Lord. Hallelujah. In your name I pray. Everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah.